This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 1st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The economics profession long ago moved on from Karl Marx, and yet his works are assigned in college classrooms at very high rates, just not in economics departments. Phil Magnus with the American Institute for Economic Research details the attempt to restore Marx as a philosopher, if not as an economist, and what it says about the rigor of the academy. It's a little bit stunning when you look at uh, college course texts in the United States to see that Karl Marx continues to rank very highly. Absolutely. He is almost always the first or second most assigned philosopher in the canon. Philosopher. Is that the field in which he is cited? Oh, he's actually across multiple fields, almost everything except for economics, which is the discipline that he made his most significant contributions to. Yeah. So, and, and I think it's fair to say that uh, you said contributions, and Karl Marx ought to be appreciated for contributions like alienated workers. Right. Things he's, like that. He, he's a figure in the history of economic thought and worth studying, but he also comes at the tail end of an age of economics, the classical uh, school of thought, and is very much a creature of that school, uh, especially his theory of value. Uh, what happens is he uh, he passes away in 1883, and already the profession has moved in a different direction. They've come to supersede him. And and it's it, it's at least fair to say that, as you mentioned, him coming at the end of the classical tradition is that uh, he sort of represented the culmination of that tradition in the sense that he was making use of theories that pretty much everybody agreed upon, like labor theory of value, and um, took it about as far as it could go. That's pretty much it. Yes, I can restart. So 1871 is the year that uh, Carl Menger and William Stanley Jevons uh, almost simultaneously discover an alternative theory of value to this labor theory of value that had dominated the classical school. That's marginalism, the subjective theory of value. And it solves problems that both Marx and his uh, predecessors had encountered in trying to claim that value derives from labor performed. So uh, get us from the 1870s to 2022 in terms of Marx's citations Right. In academic literature. Yeah. So the uh, broader project I've been working on is looking to see how academics studied and disseminated and engaged with Karl Marx. And really for about four decades after his death, from 1883 to uh, the early 20th century, most academics that do engage with Marx are economists that are specifically rebutting his economic theories. They're trying to modernize the literature in the wake of the marginal revolution. And the general consensus is that this revolution in thought and the theory of value has rendered Marxism obsolete. And yet. And yet. So there's a transformation that occurs, and that transformation really comes down to a specific event in 1917. That's the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, Vladimir Lenin and a small band of ruffians basically stage a coup d'etat, and that coup d'etat seizes the control of the government of one of the world's leading powers. And in addition to the military action of uh, consolidating their rule in the Soviet Union, one of the first things Lenin does is he wages a uh, state-sponsored propaganda campaign to rehabilitate and insert Marxist doctrine into the academic mainstream. So what we find in the citation counts is prior to 1917, 
uh, Marx is kind of piddling along as a uh, an infrequently cited, sometimes engaged, uh, but generally seen as superseded figure in the economic literature. After 1917, his citations and patterns among academics skyrocket. They almost triple overnight. So what accounts for that? Uh, that is mostly the Soviet Union's promotion of them. The Soviet government uh, starts a publishing house to disseminate and translate and put all of Karl Marx's works into press. They uh, basically build a, a personality cult around him in propaganda and statues and posters that are... Uh, uh, spread across both their own empire and then elsewhere in the world. So when you talk about citations uh, going up, this is English language citations. Absolutely. So English language citations, uh, which is generally most of the academic literature, consolidates in English language journals. Uh, so it's a good indicator. But to test this phenomenon, to study it, uh, we also look at uh, citations in German language texts, Marx's original language. And you see Almost the exact same pattern right after 1917, there's an acceleration of references to Marx that lasts until about 1932 or 1933. Then they plummet. The obvious thing that's going on there is Adolf Hitler seized power in, in Germany, and he starts to suppress Marxists among other competitor movements, uh, uh, especially on the political left. So Marxist citations drop off through the end of World War II, and then in 1946, when the Soviet Union has seize control of a portion of Germany and install the Marxist state, they skyrocket again. It's almost weird to think about that uh, an academic discipline could be so taken with if effectively propaganda. Right, right. It, it shows that political factors rather than uh, measured discussion and debate about ideas are a major determinant on why Marx is, you know, to paraphrase, some social scientists have declared him the most significant philosophical figure of the 20th century. Well, it turns out that there's a major state actor that is uh, driving quite a bit of that significance. And this is decades after the main discipline that Mark, Marx wrote in. Uh, economics has considered his ideas, engaged them and basically determine that they've been superseded, rendered obsolete by new developments in theory. Okay, so where are we now? We're in a very strange situation where Marx is mostly seen as influencing academic disciplines that are well outside of the main area he focused on, economics. Uh, he is actually much more prominent in English literature journals, sociology journals, political science, political philosophy, the arts and humanities, Outside of economics, and these were disciplines that in Marx's own day and age uh, basically paid almost no attention to him whatsoever. Uh, he has very, very few citations um, in literature journals, for example, in the 1880s and 1890s, and now he's uh, one of the most commonly cited and assigned figures in literary classes. Uh, so you have a, a divergence between the discipline he tried to influence and other disciplines that have embraced him, including his economic theories, from an external source. What else? Well, one of the things I like to reflect on when assessing Marx's economic legacy is noting this isn't simply a right versus left thing. This isn't simply a socialism versus anti-socialism uh, discussion that uh, leads to his rejection in the discipline. Some of Marx's harshest critics in economics actually come from the progressive left. So John Maynard Keynes in 1923 wrote an essay basically declaring Marx's Das Kapital, his textbook, an obsolete textbook that had been rendered uh, no matter, uh, no longer important to the discipline by developments of the marginal revolution. Paul Samuelson, one of the leading Keynesians of the 20th century, uh, basically declares in a speech before the American Economic Association, his presidential address, 
that Marx should be regarded as a post-Ricardian member of the classical school, someone who we study in the past, not consider as a, an economist in the present. Uh, so the real uh, takeaway here is that uh, academic consideration of Marx has absolutely been given by the discipline he shot, sought to shape, uh, and that discipline has moved beyond him. And yet the rehabilitation has come mostly from the wake of political events that occurred decades after Marx was dead, uh, political events that had a major state actor and a pretty ugly state actor at that as the main driver of his dissemination and mainstreaming. Well, there are still Marxist economists. There absolutely are. Uh, and they're a, a very small, small segment of the uh, discipline. Uh, I will give them credit because they are often very close readers of texts, and they uh, they delve deep into obscure historical events of the 1860s and 1870s when Marx was actually writing. Uh, but that's a, uh, a historical enterprise. It's not something that should be at the forefront of every syllabus uh, in college classrooms. So I have heard, uh, and you can tell me if this is true or not, that Marxian economics, you know, to the extent that it is is written and published doesn't cite Marx as much as it used to. Right. And this comes from uh, internal developments in Marxian thought around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, so several of his successors, and these are people that uh, Frederick Engels recruited to work on Marxist theory, started to notice other inconsistencies in his work. So one of the great problems that they run into is, uh, you know, if you're constructing a, a theory of value around labor and labor performed, and that is supposed to be determinative of how much compensation or reward a person gets. Uh, and the alienation from that is the uh, the, the entire premise of the uh, Marxian political upheaval. Uh, so their corrective on, on how to properly compensate labor requires a price for inputs of labor. And they realize, they start scratching their heads, and they realize that mathematically it's impossible to arrive at a price simultaneous to uh, determining this compensation level when labor is an input without a marketplace. Uh, so what do Marxist economists do? They start to revise and adjust and tweak various aspects of his theories to get around some of the internal inconsistencies. And they've kind of run uh, forward with that, but it's a very divergent, uh, heterodox path from the mainstream of the discipline. Phil Magnus directs research at the American Institute for Economic Research. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>